I love a good podcast, as you know, and I'm always happy to share resources for parents who are looking for creative, smart content that both entertains and offers enrichment for curious kids everywhere. So I'm happy to let you know about this awesome new show from the creators of the hit kids podcast, Who Smarted, and Netflix's Brainchild, The Adventurous World of Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as Math. Every episode follows Max and Molly, who have just been recruited into a secret order of problem solvers on an adventure through time, packed with puzzles, hidden equations, history, and laughs. The series explores themes that kids like ours love, like the stories behind math, critical thinking, code breaking, pattern solving, and more. And episodes transport kids into iconic periods in history like Pythagoras's Ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England. So cool. New episodes drop every Thursday and are about 15 minutes long, a perfect length for those car rides, for meal times, for break times, and bedtimes. What I love about this show is that it's kind of like listening to a book on tape. The story is captivating and includes lots of problems listeners can try to solve. The voice actors are fantastic, and the math concepts are seamlessly weaved into the narrative. It's exactly the kind of show Ash would have loved a few years ago, especially during our homeschool years, because finding that perfect blend of entertaining and educating, it isn't always easy. So tune into Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. I felt so alone and and so trapped and in a world that I felt incompatible to. And I felt like I just have to act like everyone else. I have to just, there's a way to be human and I'm not doing it right. So I just have to sort of pretend. And so a lot of my life has been pretending that I'm okay, that I'm funny, that I'm fine, that I'm, you know, tough, you know, and it's all a protection against being seen for who I really am, which is anxious. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. This episode is actually especially relevant this week, bearing in mind what we're all experiencing as this is being released in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, because I know that many of us and our kids are experiencing increased anxiety right now. Well, my guest, Amanda Stern, has suffered from an anxiety and panic disorder for her whole life, and she has a lot to share with us. I met Amanda at the Shift Your Thinking conference in Toronto last fall, where she shared her story of growing up with an undiagnosed panic disorder. It was so powerful. And following that event, I then grabbed Amanda's memoir, Little Panic, Dispatches from an Anxious Life, which really has just stayed with me since I read it. And I knew instantly that I needed to bring her onto the show. As you know, one of my core messages here at Tilt Parenting is that our children aren't broken or in need of fixing, and that our job is to become fluent in who our kids are and support them in being the best, most fulfilled version of themselves. And Amanda is someone who always felt as a child that something about her was wrong or broken. And so much of her frustration was that people could not see it. And this is why it's so important for me to share her story and her insights. So in our conversation, we do a deep dive into what it was like for Amanda living with a severe panic disorder with no ability to describe it or understand it, 
to really even know what was going on, uh, what it was like to revisit those panic attacks of her childhood in order to write this book, and how she felt finally getting a diagnosis when she was 25 years old. This is such an important perspective to hear, and I'm so grateful for Amanda's generosity in this frank and vulnerable discussion, so I hope you get a lot out of it. A little more about Amanda, in addition to writing Little Panic, she's also the author of nine children's books, including the Frankly Fanny series and the novel The Long Haul. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, the New York Times Magazine, the New York Times Book Review, The Believer, Salon, and many more. And most recently, she launched a podcast called Bookable, in which she is in conversation with both established authors and emerging writers. And now here is my conversation with Amanda Stern. Hello, Amanda, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this conversation ever since, you know, you and I met in Toronto, we both spoke at the Shift Your Thinking Summit. And I think we both heard each other talk and we were like, oh my goodness, we need to do a traveling show or something because... I just was really wrapped by your story, and it's such an important perspective for parents raising differently wired kids, parents in my community to hear from. So I just so appreciate the work that you do. Oh, well, thank you. And right back at you. And we really do have to stage our our 36-city tour together. Yes. All right. Let's get working on that um, (laughs) after after this episode. Um, Well, what I would love for you to do, I mean, you've written an incredible book called Little Panic, in which you share your personal story of growing up with an undiagnosed panic disorder. Um, That's what your talk was about. I was wondering if just to start this, you could share some of that personal story with us, maybe even just starting with when you knew, when you first knew that you were experiencing things differently than other kids were. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, um, so when I was little, about um, I don't know, three or four or five, even um, I start. I knew that I had these terrible feelings in my body, and obviously, I didn't know that they were different from anyone else's feelings. I thought this was just what it meant to be human. But we had to. My siblings and I had to go to my father's house every other weekend. And I had to go to school. When I started to have to go to school, I would um, have very severe reaction to leaving my mother. And the same thing happened when I would have to go visit my father. I would have, um, you know, complete meltdowns, but I would also, um, I would throw up or my body would vibrate. And it felt like I was dying And being pulled into this, like, deep black hole of nothingness. And no one around me behaved this way or acted this way or seemed to feel this way. And so over the course of time, I realized that how I responded to these partings were very different than the way my friends reacted or the way my siblings reacted. I couldn't ever have a sleepover. I couldn't have anyone sleep at my house. So with each sort of different skill that is introduced into your life, um, I would slowly discover that I couldn't do things that other kids could do. And I became acutely aware of that difference. 
Well, and it's so fascinating to me that you did have this insight or this self-awareness from a pretty early age that, you know, wait a minute, I'm experiencing this differently. Something isn't right here. And yet you really struggled to be understood or seen by the people in your life. Can you talk about that? Because, you know, you, you write about it so beautifully that you wanted some kind of external symptom to show people that what was going on internally wasn't okay. Yeah, I had a whole period of time, um, probably starting at around age eight, where I really needed someone to understand what was happening to me. And the only way I knew how to do it was to have something wrong with me. So I would pretend that I had broken my arm and I would wrap my arm up in an ace bandage and wear a makeshift sling or I would limp or squint my eyes to make it seem like I had some sort of eye twitch. Um, Anything for someone to recognize that something was felt broken inside me. And the only way I could do it was by externalizing the internal. Um, I think that it was very difficult for me to actually articulate what was happening um, beyond just saying, I'm scared, or what if you leave? What if you die? I was saying all the things, you know, I was, I was saying all the fears, but they just weren't being, they weren't received with the seriousness that I needed. They were sort of brushed off as just, you know, regular childhood separation anxiety when, in fact, it was really severe and it it crippled my life in a lot of ways daily. And I felt it all the time. It was always inside of me. And there was just no real way for me to explain that to anyone without... I, I needed a way to show them because they weren't they weren't doing anything with the words I was already using. So it was very frustrating and very difficult. And I think that there were a lot of signs and signals that were sent to my parents that just went went to the wayside that just they didn't catch on to. So I think that was also a large part of it. Well, and one of the things that is so striking in your book, and I love the way you structure this, you intersperse in between chapters, these assessments um, and tests, little experiences that you underwent so many assessments and evaluations over the course of your childhood. And, you know, I, I pulled out this quote, I highlighted so many things in your book, but I pulled out this quote, you wrote, I was confused by the tests, I couldn't understand why adults believed that state capitals, equations or analogies could determine why I was always afraid. So tell us a little bit more about that search for for an answer for solutions and and what you went through in that testing process so um when my parents started to take things seriously uh was when i started to get grades so when it was um when my anxiety manifested itself academically that's what they paid attention to instead of the actual anxiety itself so When my grades were so terrible, they assumed I had some sort of a learning disability. And so they arranged for me to get an IQ test. I wasn't told what the IQ test meant or what it was for, but I assumed it was 
to help me with my fears and to identify what was wrong with me so someone would fix it. And when I went to my first appointment, I remember being just so alarmed when the doctor started asking me these questions that had absolutely nothing to do with my worries or my fears. They were just, they were school questions, you know, and I just, I didn't understand what was happening. And I also wasn't a test taker. Like that was not my forte. And so as soon as I started to be, I started to get tested, I would have a panic attack and I couldn't function and I couldn't answer the questions. And so obviously I didn't do well on the IQ test. So then I would get sent to a different IQ tester because my parents didn't like the results of the first IQ test or, you know, or the evaluator said, we don't know. So I would go to another IQ tester and get another IQ test. And so it was very um, confusing for me. And after a couple of evaluations and tests, I felt like, oh, I understand what's wrong with me is that I'm stupid. And so that is what I learned about myself from these tests when no one was communicating with me about why I was taking them. And the fact that they weren't identifying or talking about my feelings made me feel like, oh, I should be ashamed of this other thing that's inside of me that no one can see. It's probably so embarrassing that no one wants to talk about it or it's so rare that no one can even see it. So it just sort of, you know, created um, this dichotomy in me where I felt like I was dumb and I had to hide that. And I also had these weird worries that were embarrassing and shameful. So I had to hide that. Yeah, I mean, I think that the way that you talk and, and write about that experience of, you know, what you made that mean, you know, as mm-hmm. a young child is so powerful. And I think it's something that parents in my community, we can't really hear enough of because I'm sure you're well aware of this. There's just there's a lot of stigma surrounding labels. And I do notice a lot of reluctance among parents sometimes to get a diagnosis to get a label or to share with their child what's going on. Can you can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, for me, what I would have given for someone to tell me what was wrong with me, Uh, my life would be so different. Everything about my life would have changed if my parents had sat me down and said, this is what's going on with you. Um, And I think that a lot of parents worry that if they say, you know, this is what's going on with you, it's going to make things worse, or the child is going to have developed some sort of uh, issue around that um, diagnosis. But really, we just, we know something, we already know something's wrong. You know, it's not like it's a secret to us. So having that, that label is actually helpful so that we can have context for what's going on with us. Um, So I really do believe that parents should communicate with their kids about the kids themselves. Otherwise, it feels like as a child, it feels like a part of you is being withheld from you. And when when you feel that a part of you is being withheld from you, you you begin to feel alien. And it's a very strange type of existence to know that maybe there's a secret about you that your parents know and your teachers know and the testers know, but you don't know it. And that makes 
that makes a kid feel so strange and so not even human. Mm. It's a terrible, terrible feeling. Mm. And one of the things that, you know, and you and I talked about this separately, the way that you are able to kind of capture what it felt like to be you as a child, which I think is such a powerful perspective. You know, I I used to have Asher on the show when he was younger, where he would share what it feels like to be inside his brain when he's really distracted or when he's deep diving into his interests and things like that. And I think your ability to convey, you know, the very viscerally what you experienced as a child was just as a reader, it was incredibly powerful. And as you know, as a parent, it's so upsetting to know that a child could be experiencing that. Could you talk a little bit about, I guess, tell us a little bit more about what this crippling anxiety and and panic that you were experiencing, what that looked like. And then I'd love if you just share a little bit about how you were able to capture that through your writing. Mm -hmm. Sure. So it felt like I was trapped under um, a, like a layer of vibrating heat and like I was separate from the world somehow that there was some danger between me and the world and any sort of motion I took or any sort of step I, I took that I would um, I would start feeling like I was going I was gonna die you know it just it felt sort of like I felt like my like I was being dragged by my ankles toward like a big black pond of quicksand and I was going to be pulled down into it and like just dropped into nothingness. I I felt very um, like my brain felt like someone was constantly scribbling in it. I couldn't really have I couldn't find words so much. It just felt like heat. There was a lot of heat. And, and, and pins and needles all over my body and just a terror. It was just, I felt terror and I felt terror all the time. And sometimes the terror would just show up in a flash and other times it would hang around for a few minutes and otherwise it would, you know, the closer it got to my separating from my mom, the, the, worse, it, the worse I would get. And it would become so debilitating that, that I would have to stand still and and be sort of paralyzed because if I moved, I thought I would start dying. So it was a very existential fear and it, it was very confusing to have that type of existential fear when you're little and you can't really make sense of, you can't make sense of it all, you know? And I didn't know how to calm myself down um, the only way I knew how to calm myself down was to avoid the situation that I was afraid of. And I think that's what my mom got really good at doing for me was helping me to avoid everything I was afraid of. And it wasn't until much later when I realized that it's the exact opposite thing I should be doing. So what was the second? Oh, how did I write it? Yeah, I mean, if you want to share how you were able to write in that space, because it's really it's some of the most compelling writing in terms of really just putting you there and, get, and giving the reader a sense of what it must have felt like to experience that. 
Um, well, thank you. Um, so I feel like, and this is true for me, I don't know if it's true for everyone who struggled with some sort of an emotional disorder as a child, but for me, I feel like having suffered from a panic disorder from such a young age, it, the fear is so extreme and it was so chronic that there's no possible way that I could ever separate myself from those feelings. It, those feelings are, are in me. They're a part of me. They never, I grew up, but so did the feelings grew with me. So they're still in me and I am able to call them up and feel them all over again. And I still, you know, I had a panic attack this weekend, actually, for the first time in years. And um, whew, and it was awful. And I, I thought, how did I, how did I serve? I really, honestly, like, I don't know how I survived. It just as a child going through, you know, I can barely handle it as an adult. But um, so basically when I was writing, what I would do is I would lie down on my couch and I would close my eyes and I would put myself back in my childhood bed where I, and I, I can call the smells up. I can, um, I'm just able, like my senses are very attuned and I, I would put myself back in my childhood bed and I would, um, I would, I would imagine and feel that it was the night before I had to go to my dad's house and I would just call up those childhood feelings of panic and then I, as soon as I felt a feeling, I would race to my computer and just, and describe it. Um, and so that's sort of how I did it. It was like, I was translating what I felt in my body onto the page and, um, just exactly what it was, exactly what it felt like. You know, I wasn't trying to make it fancy. I wasn't trying to make it pretty. I was just literally transcribing. And that was one, that was the most difficult part about writing the book was that, in order to adequately convey the experiences and sensations that I lived with, I had to actually re-traumatize myself over and over and over just to get it right. So that was, that was rough. Yeah, I mean, it feels very generous, like as a reader to, to know that you did that for us, you know, so that we could understand that. Was it cathartic at all, or was it just re-traumatizing? Um, it was re-traumatizing. It wasn't cathartic until the book came out and I started hearing responses. Hmm. And it was only when I knew that that my efforts had actually reached some people in the ways that I had hoped, um, that I felt like completely, you know, I felt like it was so worth it. And like I did feel a great catharsis and I also felt so much less alone, you know, um, once I started hearing from people, when I finished the book, I felt alone, but when the book came out and people started emailing me and they said, this book makes me feel less alone. I realized everyone writing to me makes me feel less alone. Um, so it was sort of a type of experience. I didn't, hadn't even considered what happened. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to up-level our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones, 
Whatever the reason, I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef offers gut-friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. Darren and I are particularly big fans of their nutrient-dense, science-backed gut and brain health recipes, developed in partnership with registered dietitians that improve digestion, reduce bloat, and also boost energy and immunity. This week's favorites, turkey, black bean, and sweet potato chili, and the Baja chicken bowls with mango salsa. I mean, don't those sound delicious? But if that's not your thing, you can choose from a variety of customized meals to suit your lifestyles with preferences like keto, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free, and protein-packed. Whatever you choose, you'll get farm-fresh ingredients, organic whole fruits and veggies, and premium proteins, along with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes delivered straight to your door. Go to greenchef.com slash 60tilt and use code 60tilt to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60tilt at greenchef.com slash 60tilt. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body. And so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. I want to go back just to touch upon, you know, you, you said, I don't honestly don't know how I survived that. And I agree, you know, in just the way that you describe how you felt all the time and the terror that you experienced. And, and I just think of you as this little human and it's heartbreaking to know that that was what you were experiencing and that it wasn't being seen. And, you know, you wrote, I I think it was your mom who would write you notes that would say like, you're a okay. And at one point, you said she's writing things that are the opposite to how I feel. So can you talk a little bit more just about that disconnect between what others did or said to you and what was really going on? Yeah, I mean, that goes on to this day. But there really was a real disconnect to how I was feeling and how people perceived me. A lot of what happens when you are suffering from something that you consider to be shameful, or and you consider it to be shameful because no one 
in no adult in your life is attending to it properly, um, it, you start to create a persona and you, you start to hide the tenderness behind a, a, a facade so that you can protect yourself. Um, and I started to very early on um, develop this sort of persona of this like little funny kid. I was funny. I made jokes. I, you know, was a little comedian, but that was outside of the house In, and inside of the house. I did it some, but inside of the house, I, w- I was really my full entire self, but it just, I didn't understand how I could feel the way I felt. And, and it, and my mom couldn't feel it too. You know, how could she not, how could I feel this horrible and this close to death? And she just has no idea. And it, it really just, I felt so alone and, and so trapped and in a world that I felt incompatible to. Um, and I felt like I just have to act like everyone else. I have to just, there's a way to be human and I'm not doing it right. So I just have to sort of pretend. And so a lot of my life has been pretending that I'm okay, that I'm funny, that I'm fine, that I'm, you know, tough, you know, and it's all a protection against being seen for who I really am, which is anxious, um, and having that be misunderstood because it was misunderstood my entire life. And there's nothing more painful than being misunderstood for your core self. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering if you've thought, I'm sure you have, but if you've even articulated what exactly you needed as a child. I mean, I know there are parents listening to this who, who are going to be hearing your story and, and feeling like, wow, this is what my child's experiencing. And I didn't realize, or maybe I'm downplaying it or minimizing it or trying to, you know, fix it. So what did you need? What do you want parents to know? Well, I think what I needed, I think I needed to be put first. And I don't, I think my, my parents didn't put me before them in some ways. For instance, when I would get so traumatized about going to my dad's house every other weekend. I wish that instead of just sending me and watching me suffer and come home, I had call my mom hysterically crying halfway through the weekend and make her come up and get me. And, and she would get me and bring me home. So I didn't understand, like, if you're going to come get me, why are you sending me there? And I wish that what they had done was to really pay attention and see, oh, she's really struggling with this. Maybe, maybe this isn't the best idea for her. And maybe instead of sending her uptown, maybe there's another way that we can have her spend time with her dad. And maybe it could be on her terms. Uh, Nothing was ever on my terms. So, you know, if they had sat down with me and said, talk me through what it feels like to you, let's draw it. You know, where does it feel in your, tell me, point to in your body where it hurts. What does it feel like in that part of your body? If someone had just sat with me and just listened, honestly, I think it would have, that would have been enough, but no one did. And I just needed someone to hear me. I really needed someone to hear me and to see me. 
and to not become frustrated with me when I was panicking and not to like dismiss me when I was panicking and not to call me names when I was panicking, but to really value my experience as torturous, even though I'm a child or especially because I'm a child. So I just think that parents, one of the things that I wonder about, I just don't understand is why so many parents don't take their kids seriously. There are a lot of parents who don't seem to like look at, at kids as an entire human person. And there's a lot of, you know, dismissiveness. And it might just be the people that I see around. But I know a lot of parents are amazing and they love their kids and they pay attention to them and they see them and they hear them. But, you know, there's a subset of parents who are maybe afraid or they just don't... Um, they don't know how to handle it. And so they, they don't do anything. And I think that that's, that's not the way to go. Yeah, I would agree 100% with that. I think, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking of that word fluency, which I use a lot that our job as parents is to become fluent in who our kids are, and Mm -hmm. how they're experiencing the world and how they're feeling and experiencing their emotions and conveying what's happening inside of them so that we can translate and, and, and help them. But it requires time and it does require a real willingness to put the brakes on and say, okay, wait a minute, I can't just keep forging ahead um, with my you know vision or path for what this is going to look like. I need to slow down and recalibrate. Yeah. And also I feel like a lot of things, one of the other things I wish my mom had done, which wouldn't have happened, but, and didn't, but I wish someone, I wish someone had said, you know, anxiety begins at home. So who here has anxiety? You know, which of the parents has anxiety and sort of compelled my parents or my mom or my dad to look at themselves and to see that, they too suffered from what I was suffering from, but just in a different form or, you know, it manifested differently than mine. But if they had understood that they were my models and that, that continuing to model things with, with the, the way that they were modeling things was reinforcing my anxiety because they were showing me how to live in the world as anxious people. And they were never aware enough were conscious enough of their own behaviors that, you know, it just never would have occurred to them to think of that. So when I talk to parents at schools, I, I always say that it's important for parents to, to, before they even try and address the anxiety with their kids, to sit down with themselves and, and see if they suffer, are they suffering from anxiety? And, and, how, where does where do they feel it in their body? What does it feel like? How does it manifest? And and what are the ways that they might be modeling this anxiety for their kids? And that's a good place to start. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. 
But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're aiming more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. I would love to... I actually would love to just touch upon your launch for a minute, because that is something, you know, what our kids launch and movement out into the world looks Mm -hmm. like is of top concern for so many families. And, you know, you talk about that, and how your mother, because she had already always kind of swooped in to fix things or solve things or protect you from problems, that when you got to that point, there were a lot of things you just didn't know how to do. Mm-hmm. So how did you how did you get through that? How did you navigate that launch and and realizing I need some skills that I don't have? Um, I did a lot of pretending. You know, it was really embarrassing. I didn't know how to do really basic things. So I did a lot of pretending, and I would watch other people figure out. You know, I'd study them and do what they did, and um, but but usually, quite honestly, my mom would do it. And, you know, if I had to sign a lease or get an apartment or she would like put all the stuff together and help me, you know, not help me, but just sometimes just do it for me, which, again, would keep me from learning how to do it. But, you know, I think, um, oh, I also had a boyfriend at that time and he knew everything. So I learned a lot from him and that was really helpful. But I think, you know. 
thank God for Google, right? I didn't, <laughs> we didn't have that. But I think now, I, you should see my history now. I, the things I look up are ridiculous. But, I, you know, I just, I still, I am sort of consumed with how to do like regular basic things because I was never taught anything. But so I think, you know, Google is the amazing resource for people who, who you know, don't know how to open a bank account or don't know how to start a business or don't know how to, you know, rent a home. But yeah, it was really overwhelming. It was, it was really hard, but I was lucky too. I have an older sister who also would answer a lot of questions and also help me do a lot of things. And so that was, that was great. Um, I also didn't move far from home. I moved like four blocks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you tell us, just so listeners can kind of come full circle, tell us about that moment when you finally got the name that you had been looking for your whole life for what was happening with you? So I um, had a a major meltdown uh, one night when I was 25, and I had, I had sort of just like reached my limit of living with this. It had become just intolerable. I, you know, it had gone untreated and undiagnosed for, for 25 years and it had blossomed and grown into all these other anxiety disorders. And so by the time I was 25, I had agoraphobia, I had social anxiety, you know, I had depression, I had all these other issues. And I, I felt suicidal, and so I called my mom, and I was needed her help, and so she arranged for me to see a therapist, her therapist, the next morning, and, um, and so I went to the therapist the next morning, and I explained what was happening to me, and he asked me how long it had been going on, and he meant days and weeks, which I didn't realize, and I said, you know, I, I don't know, probably I, since I was two. And, um, and he was just floored. And he said, oh, my, my God, you, like, you have a very extreme panic disorder. And as soon as he said panic, like the word panic, it was, it was the word I had been looking for my entire life. It just, it was like an epiphany that someone else was having for me. And it was so right. It just answered the question of my life. And I felt um, for a really long moment, like I, I did belong here, that I did have a purpose because I had a name. And without that name, I just felt unmoored. And like there was a part of me that was this lingering question that had no answer. And I just didn't want to, I couldn't, it was too hard to, to live like that. So yeah, it was revelatory. And, you know, he told me there was medication I could take and I had to go to therapy and all this stuff. And I was like, sign me up. But, um, you know, little did I know that it would take a very long time for my anxiety to get controlled by me, you know, and not just medication, but because it had gone untreated for so long. So there was just like 25 years of work. So I feel like I really started life at 25. Like I feel like that's when I was, I was really born as a, like a conscious person, you know, who like my fair chance 
started at 25. Wow. Yeah. So powerful. So if there are parents who are listening to this, and I know there are, who have a child that they recognize has severe anxiety, uh, possibly a panic disorder, what would you want them to do? Like where, where should they start and how can they best support their kids? Um, let's say a good place to start is to read my book. Um, and also there's a book called The Worry Cure, which I really love by Robert Leahy, which explains a lot about what worry is and what anxiety is. Um, and, you know, the internet is just in a, a, has a wealth of resources on it. But I think that I would, I would just start, um, I would start asking the question to yourself, you know, am, am I anxious? What am I anxious about? And if it's a problem that you haven't you haven't solved or you haven't dealt with or you don't have under control, then I think you have to start with yourself and, you know, either you start going to therapy or, um, if you can't afford that, there are amazing, well, in New York city, at least uh, amazing clinics that you can go to, but I definitely think it has to start with the parent. And then once they understand how their anxiety feels and how it manifests, they'll be able to understand what's going on with their kid. And if the parent doesn't have anxiety, then I think that the starting with the books are a good, a good place to start. Yeah. And so um, listeners, I will include links to Amanda's book. It's called Little Panic Dispatches from an Anxious Life. I believe it's newly out on paperback. Is that right? Um, it's been out in paperback for seven months. I oh, think. okay. Okay. Again, it's just a really powerful read. And I highly recommend it. I've been telling everybody about it. So um, definitely check that out. And Amanda's written many other books, um, series for kids and working on a novel. So very prolific writer, but I'll include a link to Amanda's website as well. Is there anywhere else where listeners can connect with you? Yeah. Um, so my website, amandastern.com, they can email me through there. I also do have an anxiety resources page. Um, and I have an a anxiety blog that I've been um, very bad about uh, keeping up to date, but it does have a lot of essays uh, that address a lot of questions that parents have had about their kids and anxiety. And uh, yeah, I'm so happy to answer any emails from anyone. People write me uh, through Twitter, through Instagram, through Facebook. So really anywhere you find me, feel free to email Fantastic. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for sharing with us today. I'm really just happy to share your powerful story with this community. And again, you know, I think we both had that moment when we heard each other speak that we were Mm -hmm. sharing these two perspectives that need to be part of the same conversation. And I just really appreciate your insights today. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. I'm so happy to finally be on the show. It's very exciting, and I'm honored and flattered. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, visit tiltparenting.com slash podcast and search for this conversation. If you like what you heard on today's episode, I would be grateful if you could take a minute to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a review. Thank you so much for helping us stay visible so people who would benefit from the show can easily find it. 
If you want to support the show and help me cover the cost of production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. To support the show, just visit patreon.com slash tilt Lastly, if you aren't already part of the online community at Tilt, I invite you to sign up at TiltParenting.com on the box in the bottom where it says join the revolution. Every Thursday, I send out a short email with a quick note from me, a link to that week's podcast episode, and links to five stories from the news that week that are relevant to parents like us. Again, you can sign up and learn more about Tilt at www.TiltParenting.com. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.